Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me makes me stronger. Carla Fernandez, thank you so much for joining my podcast here. It's a pleasure. Happy to be here. Particularly appreciative of the opportunity because I think we've known each other since uh, seventh grade. I think approximately we were 13. (laughs) (laughs) And have since, uh, you know, gone on to experience our our respective paths that have had our own ups and downs. But thank you so much for for being on today and and, uh, being willing to share with me. And I'd love to get started by asking a question. What is the dinner party? Thanks for, I'm happy to get to talk with you and share what I've been up to with your listeners. So the dinner party is a platform mostly for 20 and 30 somethings who've experienced significant loss to gather for reoccurring potluck style dinners to talk about their loss and life after. It's a community that's now in about a hundred cities across the country, some international cities as well. Yeah, it was an organization that I helped found in the year following my dad's death, which was back in 2010. Your father died in 2010? Yep. So I was going, I went to NYU for undergrad and was studying social entrepreneurship, which is sort of this idea that we might come up with new organizational models, for-profit, non-profit, a blend to solve some of like the sticky, intractable problems facing humanity. And I just loved the premise and interned and got experience working with a bunch of different social enterprises and kind of wondered like what issue area I might work on one day, but hadn't really felt a strong call. And then when I was a senior in college, my dad was diagnosed with brain cancer. I graduated school and instead of, you know, doing what many of my peers were doing, going on a backpacking trip or starting their first jobs, I ended up moving home Um, and being one of his caretakers. And he was alive for about six more months after that. And at the time, it felt like this obviously very sad detour. Um, My dad was only 54 when he died and was a really brilliant person and a really big mentor of mine. But then the more I sort of sat in the experience of both being a young person who was a caretaker, I was 21 at the time, um, and also being a young person who recently lost someone significant, it occurred to me that there really hasn't been much innovation brought into the grief support space. A lot of the books on the bookshelf are outdated, or at least were when we started doing this work. A lot of the the resources and the support groups that I reached out to didn't really scratch the itch that I was feeling. I went to therapy and it was wonderful, but very much a monologue. I went to a grief support group and it was mostly filled with people who had lost someone, whether it was a parent or a partner, at a more sort of natural time in life. So they were mostly in their 50s and 60s. And the environment was always very cold. It was like, you know, a circle of metal folding chairs with a tissue box in the middle. And it was me and all these 60 plus ladies and great people. And those spaces really work for some. But at that time, it kind of left me feeling more alone. Yeah. 
and I didn't start doing this with any intention of like starting an organization, but what I really craved was a place that just felt human and comfortable where I could talk with other people who'd also experienced a loss and had started to kind of keep tabs on other young people I knew who had lost a parent or a sibling or a close friend um, and invited them over for dinner one night with the intention that it would probably be super weird and we might only ever do this once, but like thought it was worth giving it a shot. And I cooked up one of my dad's favorite recipes and toasted to him. And it, um, while there was some sort of pre-dinner jitters for everyone that was there, we ended up having this phenomenal conversation that was not just about the people that we were missing or the accident or the cancer or what had happened, but a lot of the conversation was about this question of like, what's next? Like, how, how will we live our lives with this as a part of it? What are the questions that we're holding right now that we maybe would have gone to those people for advice around, but we're now left having to figure them out on our own. And after that first dinner, at the end of the night, everyone kind of looked at each other and there was this clear sense of like, when are we going to do this again? And that original table met about monthly for a year before we even started to realize that we were on to something and that we weren't the only five people who were craving this kind of space. It's amazing how much you know, what you experienced very much reflects what I experienced when I lost my sister, Samantha, who uh, would have been 30 yesterday. It feels so isolating, even though it's, you know, death is obviously ubiquitous and, and everyone at some point will, will come into contact with it. I think you were 21. I was 27. Samantha died in a car accident. Having those sudden deaths at an, at a relatively earlier age or, you know, when, when people aren't usually experiencing those, it is quite isolating. And I think that the resources that you mentioned aren't really equipped to, as you put it, you know, address that kind of different, different dynamic. I remember being, uh, so, uh, kind of su- surprised when, when I came into a contact with a, a grief counselor and, and they were just, they seemed so ill-equipped to have a conversation about it. You know, I don't mean to cast dispersions on a whole, uh, whole industry. I'm sure there are a lot of good grief counselors, but I think it's this idea of, you know, hanging out and supporting the family of, of uh, folks who are older or have gone out in a certain way. So it's incredible because I think it's so hard to articulate what you're feeling and it's so hard to articulate what you need. But if you can gather other people that uh, are going through something similar, that's really powerful. It wasn't about, I don't know if you found this after you lost Samantha, it wasn't like I was looking for someone to stop the grief. That's not going to happen. It's this natural process that we all go through. But even just hearing someone across the table say out loud the thing you've been thinking but have been too, you know, ashamed or nervous or awkward to mention has like a very deep, can give you a very deep sense of relief that can then just allow you to move through the inevitability of grief with less of a sense of tension or suffering or whatever it is. You know, I recall being so frustrated because I couldn't articulate what I was feeling in the way that I wanted to come across, you know, trite sayings or, or things like that, that seem, you know, on, on one hand, it's like, oh, this is a, you know, this is an aphorism because it's true uh, or cliche because it's true. But on the other hand, it feels so inadequate to, you know, to also describe what you're going through and to be able to make that, that connection emotionally and in discussion with others is so powerful. Do you remember any of the worst things people said to you? We, we talk a lot about this. Like, how do we strike from the record phrases like they're in a better place or 
I don't know. I don't know if there was any that stood out to you, but a lot of the work that we're interested in doing is not just supporting people that are grieving, but also being better advocates for ourselves so Mm -hmm. that our friends and our family members and everyone else who might not be in the, in the driver's seat, so to speak, can support us better um, and can be like less, less awkward around this topic and say things that are less nail on the chalkboard. Yeah. I remember some really good ones and some really bad ones. I remember there's, you know, there's one grief counselor I came into contact with who I was having a, a hard time. And so we talked to him. This was like, you know, within a week after Samantha's passing and he made the comment of, oh boy, you know, it's, uh, I wouldn't want to be you. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> like okay, thanks. well, yeah. What do we, uh, what do we have here for? Or, you know, someone that's else. Good. That's so bad. It's good. Yeah. I'm like, in the hall of shame. Yeah. You know, someone made the comment and it was a very well-meaning comment, but something about, oh, you know, Samantha would be so touched by the condition you're in or how upset you are. And it was like, what, <laughs> what does that, I don't, you know, like, I didn't even know what to say about that. Um, there's so many yeah. things where it's just like, there's just nothing you can say. I think I remember some really good ones too. The biggest thing for me is like, I remember the people who were there, not so much what people said, but just like people who showed up and reached out and spent time. And it can be a very uncomfortable thing for people. And I recall before losing Samantha being very, very uncomfortable with the idea of loss or people who were grieving. And I was, I was probably avoidant of, you know, engaging around that because it it was something that scared me. And so it's understandable, but I, I remember the folks who, who were there and I know were there, you know, through probably significant discomfort just to support me. But the best, uh, probably the best comment was, you know, a mentor of mine I was talking to and I told him I didn't appreciate the degree to which pain existed in life. And I didn't know that I could feel, I didn't know I could feel pain like this. Like I didn't, you recognize things exist intellectually, but you don't, like I didn't, I didn't really understand what it meant to, to hurt or have any emotion of that depth until then. But his comment back to me was, if you can feel pain that deeply, you can also feel joy that deeply. And you have, you know, you have that to look forward to in life. Obviously, you know, it's going to, it's a long road and you got to take it day by day. But the, but the fact that you can feel that deeply on one side of the spectrum means that you can, you can on the other one too. And the whole experience really um, was a, emotional awakening for me because Samantha was very uh, high EQ person. And I was, uh, I was always shirked away from, from sort of uh, emotional experiences or expressing emotions. And that was uh, that whole dynamic really, really changed that for me. That's such a beautiful reflection. And I think about it also as like, if you can feel grief that deeply, you can feel love that deeply. And that it's like to one of the, one of my teachers in this space talk about grief and praise or grief and love sleep in the same bed or they're two sides of the same coin. And it's almost like the tax that we pay in order to, to love people as deeply as we do. Yeah. I think it's in many ways, it's a, a token of the beautiful relationship that you had to feel that deeply. So how long Carla, after your father passed, did you found the dinner party? It was a long journey in some ways. He died in January and pretty quickly after I started the work, I hosted the first dinner in October. So about 10 months after he died, which now looking back, I'm like, well, I hopped on that. 
And I know about myself now that like the way that I heal is build community and bring people together. So it was very much like what I personally needed to move through that time. I felt like I really needed a group of friends who got what I was going through. So I couldn't find it out in the world in existing support groups. So I just kind of made it. But it wasn't until 2012, so about two years later, that Lennon Flowers, who was a dear friend and a member of that original table, and now our executive director and my co-founder, it wasn't until 2012 that we decided, like, this is a big idea. Let's become a nonprofit. We like, got fiscally sponsored as a nonprofit. And like, let's really come out of the closet and do this thing. And in that two-year period, we were getting a lot of inbound from people who, through word of mouth, heard that their friends were going to this dinner party thing. Could they come? Or their therapist had heard about it and referred them to us. And in the very beginning, we were like, like, there isn't anything special we're doing here. You just get together with other people who've experienced loss and like talk about it. This is not rocket science. But what we started to learn was that a lot of young people who'd experienced loss very much wanted to have the conversation but didn't have other friends or peers that they could go to to fill a table with or didn't feel comfortable emailing their coworker who they know had just lost someone and inviting them to do this. It just felt too taboo and weird. And what they really needed was kind of like a, like a matchmaking function, which is now what we provide. And the other thing that they needed was like a format and some guidelines because we've totally had dinner parties before in the early days where we would avoid the conversation until like dessert was served. And then finally someone would be like, okay, can we talk about the reason why we're all here and (laughs) stop talking about how amazing Game of Thrones is. And in 2012, we had this kind of coming out of the closet, but crowdfunding campaign. Um, Lennon, my partner, quit her job, decided to make this her full-time work. I, at the time, was in the process of founding a creative agency. She like jumped in the boat. I kept one foot in the boat and one foot on land in the sort of like, when to quit your day job question, which we can talk about more. Yeah. And then the last, I can't believe it's been eight years since then, but we've been very slowly and intentionally building what is now a community of about 10,000 people who gather regularly for dinners to talk about their loss. And um, it's been quite a ride. It's interesting. You you mentioned on your website, you referred to the dinner party as solving the crisis of isolation. And in you know, the early dinners, it was this topic that people avoided talking to unless until you until you push the issue. And it seems like there's this taboo in society about talking about death, talking about grief, engaging around these topics. I even mentioned it earlier, where it's like that it used to be something that made me deeply uncomfortable before I experienced it myself. Where do you think that comes from? And how do you how do we as a society try and embrace these ideals a little bit more and not look at it through fear, but, but try and think about it from a, from a perspective of love and support. It's so interesting because when we started this work, we were like, oh, this is purely about grief. But what we started to realize was that grief is actually just the thing that gets people's butts in the chair. It's like the intervention point or the moment of crisis where people recognize that they really need support or they need friendship with people who get it. And what happens is, when we start conversations with people from a place of like our greatest pain and our greatest heartache, the kinds of relationships that can form are way more powerful than if you're like, not to throw shade on sports, but like if you're bonding over the fact that you both love the same football team, for example, and that if we 
let our source of our heartache actually become the place from which we're building relationships, we can create some really powerful connections that like go way below the surface. There's all this interesting science happening right now around the crisis of isolation and loneliness increasing and how so many people don't feel like they have a confidant or someone that they can go to. Um, Many young people don't live in the towns where they grew up, which means that they don't have, in our community's case, family members or friends who know them well or know the person that they lost well. So there's really a sense that many people are, I always use this word sort of unmoored, like unanchored, like kind of floating. And that can be hard regardless of whether or not you've lost someone. And then when you layer the grief onto that, I think it actually motivates people to reach out for support and build those kinds of connections that can be hard to find with just like your coworkers or friends from a pickup soccer game. I noticed you you mentioned you couldn't find it when you were going through it yourself. And so you built it. It seems like this essential service. It's a, it's a nonprofit, but such an entrepreneurial endeavor that you're, that you're talking about that you scaled up. And I know you, you co-founded a a digital agency as well. How has taken this, this painful event in your life and letting it transform into building an organization? How has that dovetailed with your entrepreneurial career? Yeah, it's interesting. I I think that I like have whatever blessing and curse it is to be an entrepreneur and to see that if there's work to be done in the world and no one else is doing it, why not me? Why not now? I say it's a curse because it also means that like it's a lot of work and it's takes time and um it's kind of hard to shut it off sometimes. I think that that's what I'm learning how to do now is to continue being in service to these organizations that I've helped create and not let it like take over all my life. Yeah. And while the dinner party is a nonprofit and I am basically a volunteer, I don't draw any salary from the work that I do. Um, Every dollar I fundraise, I just put back into the organization. It's definitely been an entrepreneurial mission. You know, we've had to figure out like, how do we we don't often talk about it in these terms, but like we have a product that we're refining. We have users that we're working with. We have like a growth trajectory. We have like an idea of where we want to take this thing. There's like an acute problem in the world that we're solving. And it's been interesting and challenging something, being a part of something that was originally what kind of felt like a art project, like a social experiment. And over time has now evolved into a team of eight people and with a board and with a community of thousands. And there are definitely some challenging moments in the, in the building process where Len and my partner and I both realized like, Oh, we, while we're leading this organization, it's not ours alone anymore. Most of the time, that's a great thing. Cause we have an amazing team. That's like making our work better than we ever could just the two of us. But there has been a lot of learning and like, how do you let something go? And like, how do you decide what decisions to be a part of? And what do you let just sort of, flow without you. And, you know, we now have like people that we're accountable to to, and other people making decisions along with us. And I think we're getting through the phase where there's discomfort in that. And we're now just sort of stoked that we're no longer alone in building this thing. Uh, But I think because the work is so personal, there's been a whole, there's been an interesting layer of like, you know, this is something that Lennon and I were inspired to start because of the losses that we've experienced. And it's now so much bigger than a story about my dad and her mom. It's a story about thousands of other people who've lost folks that were significant to them. So how do we get out of the way and let this sort of train enter in? What does that look like at the dinner party level? 
is there kind of a structure that you guys offer to that or is it up to the host, up to the guests and what happens, happens? A lot of the work that we do is refining what the structure is, like what act, how does this thing work under the hood? And we've gone through different iterations as we've grown and as we've experimented um, currently. And then even right now in COVID times, we're having to build up a whole new structure of how do we do this work virtually. But let's just take February 2020 or January 2020. We have a team that oversees different regions across the country. And they are sort of each regional fellow, we call them, is responsible for working closely with the hosts that we have recruited and trained in those places. And the hosts are all volunteers. They're all people who've experienced loss themselves. They've raised their hands to be the person that physically invites people into their space, not always, but often, and is sort of the one setting up the doodle pole and picking the date and making sure that people are bringing different dishes and it's not an entire meal of Ben and Jerry's ice cream pints, which has happened before when we do these potlucks, which is actually kind of awesome. That sounds good. It's a great meal. And the hosts, we train them and we train them and we train them intentionally sort of lightly. Like we don't want people to sit down at dinner and feel like they're having a conversation with a licensed facilitator or an official grief counselor. It's really supposed to feel like friends sitting down with friends. And for each host that we have, we match them to anywhere between five and 15 people that live in their area. So as you can imagine, places like Anchorage, Alaska, there is one table and anybody who applies in Anchorage gets sent to her table. In places like New York City, where we have dozens and dozens of tables, we're able to look at people's applications and match them, not just based on whether they both live in Williamsburg, but also on their interests and where they are in their life and their, the, the loss type that they went through. Um, so a lot of our team's time goes into that sort of hand matchmaking of people to tables, which I think for a lot of technology people are like, that's crazy. You're doing that by hand. But to us at this time, it really feels like the special sauce because it's that those are the factors that will make a table actually stick. It's like, how do we match people and help make sure there's the first dates and the first dinners are stronger than if it was just to be a random assortment. And we are right now building a new platform that will basically allow people once their application has been approved to type in their zip code and read through a directory of all of the bios of hosts who have seats available and then through their own agency select which tables they want to join. So for the, for the person joining a table in New York and the person joining a table in Anchorage, would there be some commonalities in, in that experience? In the sign-up experience? In the sign-up or at the dinner table? Are there, are there stock questions or are there, is there a process to it? Yeah. So there's, we give hosts a set of guidelines that they kick off every conversation with. I think some hosts religiously use the guidelines to start every conversation. Others, after the second or third dinner, it's just like, so how's everybody doing? But a couple of the questions, a couple of the kind of guidelines at the beginning are, around confidentiality. So like the biggest rule, what happens at the table stays at the table. We ask that people use I statements and not shift into advice giving mode. I'm sure there were people after you lost Samantha that came in giving you advice about things where you were like, you don't know what I'm talking. Yeah. So none of that. We also give people permission to just like sit quietly the whole time. Like there's some spaces where it's like, okay, now you share this is not what we say a share or die experience. People can silence her just as much as speech. And those are some of the examples of the guidelines that the host set. Generally, then everyone will go around the table and say their name, who brings them to the table, like who is the person they lost. 
And then this is the most important piece, which is where are you at right now? I think it can be easy when you've experienced a loss to when someone asks you about your person. For me, I go back to cancer caretaker story. It's like I've said it a million times. The question, how are you today, makes me think like, oh, I don't know, it's Father's Day coming up. And actually, geez, I haven't thought about it. But like, what am I going to do that day? And how do I make sure it not, doesn't suck? And like, maybe I should check in with my brother and sister about that because like, they're probably wondering the same thing too. And we ask people to like come back to the present tense of like, how is your grief showing up in your life right now, if it is? And how do we start a conversation from that place? So it's less the rehearsed conversation and more like, what is what feels real and pressing for you today, right now? And then once folks go around the table and do that intro, it's kind of magic in that there's always some theme that emerges. Sometimes it has to do with the time of the year, like the holidays are approaching, um, but oftentimes, like there's a there's a conversation that people want to go back to and discuss as a group, whether it's like, you know, dealing with your boss at work or dating is a very popular topic around the dinner party table or becoming a parent when you don't have a parent. And yeah, there's like a thousand different sort of types of conversations that can emerge and no no two dinner parties are, are ever the same because of that. It's amazing. I've certainly found in my life that the conversations that are born out of a shared pain or similar pain quite often lead to beautiful relationships and, and depth of relationship, but also really insightful conversations about, about life, I think. Yeah. And that's what my, the, the reason I still do this work is because, it's not because I still feel like I'm grieving my dad. It's been now 10 years, miss him deeply, but it's not the first thing I think about when I wake up every morning anymore. But the thing that brings me back into this work is the fact that really what these conversations are about are how do we live well? Like now that we all know acutely deeply, non-intellectually, but viscerally that life is short, that we are mortal, that our time here is limited. Like now what? And we use grief as sort of the doorway into that conversation. But what these tables are talking about is actually like, to me, some of the most essential questions of life that as young people who are so busy scrolling on Instagram and traveling around and watching YouTube and all things that I do too, it can be hard to find spaces where we're just all we're doing for a couple hours is sitting in those questions with other people that are asking those questions too. So for me, it's almost like this Trojan horse of we get people to the table because of a loss, but people stay at the table because it's a community with which you can talk about the big hairy questions that don't always come up in everyday life. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think in many regards, and it, I, I experienced this to some extent, you get this silver lining experiencing loss where you you appreciate, as you said, how short life is. And you appreciate it in a way that you didn't read it in a book somewhere. You very quickly learned it up front. And it makes you ask, I think, really important questions of yourself. Can I ask you a question? Yes. How do you think you are you live differently now that Samantha was both here and also now that she's gone? I mean, it's wildly different. It set me on a path of self-discovery an exploration of a lot of themes that I kind of, and aspects of life that I wrote off wholesale. So, you know, I mentioned embracing more of an emotional spectrum of life, but I realized how much, how much of life is, is really in that emotional and tangible aspect of, of things. I, I recall, um, you know, I, for, for a long time as a, as a young person sort of 
fell into the camp of equating emotion or open displays of emotion with with weakness. And I remember at Samantha's funeral afterwards, we we hosted a, a function at the house, and I spoke at her service and was openly, you know, extremely emotional in front of a massive, massive audience. I remember someone coming up to me and just thanking me for for sharing and sort of this this realization of strength is actually sharing sharing your emotion with the world, sharing your feelings with the world and with other people, as opposed to being too afraid of of letting them out. And so that was that was a really, really important, very visceral lesson to me shortly after Samantha died. And and so much of sort of how my life has changed has been has been part of that. I used that experience to sort of go out into the world and have a lot of different conversations with people about life. I, for a while, deconstructed my life and all the assumptions that I had about who I was and what I wanted to go do and and tried to build back up a ontology of how I was going to, how I was going to think about life. But I'm, I'm curious, I have a question for you because I've, I've experienced this, um, coming out of that. There's this, there's this dynamic for me where I, uh, after losing Samantha, there's uh, this thought of like, this is the worst thing that could have happened. This is the worst pain that could have happened. You know, family, which is central to my life has been disfigured in a way we've lost this, you know, person who is larger than life. I had this thought of like, this is the worst thing that happened. So nothing after this can ever be this bad. And it, totally. it gave me this feeling of like invulnerability to a certain extent as life went on. I mean, that lasted for a period of time. And then as life went on, I've reflected often on Victor Frankl in, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, describes this, this scene when the prisoners in the concentration camp return home to their homes in Europe. And they expect to be, you know, welcome back with open arms and their neighbors look at them and say, so what we've, we've suffered too. And there's this notion of, he writes about them thinking, oh, well, well, we've suffered. And so now, and now that suffering's done. And it's this notion of, but, but there is no end to suffering, right? Is there's, there's still these, these hardships in life. There's still adversity in front of you just because of this deep, unbelievable pain that you're experiencing. You're not you're not invulnerable moving forward. I'm curious if you've if you've kind of experienced a, a similar dynamic. Yeah. It's so funny. And it's something that we don't something that doesn't come up as often, but when it does, it's very real for people. I remember when my dad died having the thought of like, okay, this is gonna sound so messed up, but like, okay, one down, one to go in overcoming living through loss of parents. And it's so surreal because like so much of the work I do now in the community that I have and the joy that I get comes from building an organization that I would love nothing more than to like share this with my dad. He'd be so stoked about this thing that we've built. And yet like it only exists because he's gone. And there's this weird, it's weird as we think about like, oh, the silver lining or the things that have come out positively. It can be hard to reckon with holding both like I'm grateful for the life that I've been able to live in the wake of your loss. And like, I also really wish that you were still here. And I do think this, the ongoing suffering question is interesting. It's like, I remember, I actually haven't talked about this much, but I remember my uncle, my dad's brother-in-law was like exceptionally weepy at my dad's funeral. And I remember being like, why are you so beat up about this? Like, I know you loved him and you were close, but like, come on, he was my dad. He's your brother-in-law. Like, why are you crying harder than I am? 
And now looking back and having talked to him about it a little bit, there's a sense of like, he had already buried his parents, his mother, his father, and a brother who died of a heart attack. And there is a little bit of an experience that like grief compounds and that every time we lose someone, we're reliving the loss of like the people that have left before. And at the same time, we're like a little more comfortable with the terrain and like we know that it's going to get easier and like we know that we're going to come out on two feet. So if this work has taught me anything, it's like holding dualities. This is like the masterclass on like this is true and also its opposite is true. And I know sometimes our logical brains like can't compute the fact that like you will be more equipped the next time that you have to go through something terrible like this and you will feel it more deeply because you will not only be missing that person, but you'll be missing Samantha or like it'll be harder because Samantha won't be there to support you or cheer you on. So it's a trip. And, you know, there's, there's totally times where I feel like at some bizarre advantage because I was 21 and instead of like, you know, going to Coachella and raving, which is probably what I wanted to do. I was <laughs> caring for someone dying of cancer. You know, it wasn't like a resume builder, but it definitely was like a character builder and a skill builder in some senses. And like, you know, I remember getting a job that next year and people on our team would be freaking out about stupid stuff that, you know, an entry level employee would freak out about. And I remember really feeling like this is not a big deal. Literally, I know what it's like when someone's life is on the line and like whatever this, I was working in a magazine and it was something about, you know, an article or some media scandal that I watched some of my colleagues like melt down around and remember being like, we're good. This is nothing. We can handle so much more than this. Like I'm not taking this home with me. Um, Like I know what's worth taking home and it's not like this bullshit. Has that stuck with you, that ability to maintain that objectivity? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We talk about it a lot with our team. Like there's totally moments where I slash Lennon, my partner slash our team will get so like twisted up in the weeds and like stressed about stupid stuff. And it is a practice that we have to maintain of like stepping back, reminding ourselves why we do this in the first place. And Um, We just had someone from our team is taking a sabbatical right now. And her realization was that she was anxious and stressed out because we're in the middle of converting all of our programs virtually. And her point and her kind of like, like white flag that she flew to ask for help was like, her mom had died of ALS. The reason she's doing this work is not to be stressed is not to wake up anxious. It's actually about modeling like a good way of living after loss. And when our team gets like below the line, we have to remind ourselves like the most important thing we could do is actually demonstrate what it looks like to live well with this as a part of our stories. And as soon as we start, as soon as we start coming and working from a place of like negative energy, I know this all sounds kind of woo woo, but you know what I mean? If we're ever approaching this work from a place of like panic or dread or stress or anxiety, we're 1000% defeating the point and we've drifted from our mission. So like, how do we always approach everything we do with a sense of like, we've got this, anything's possible. At the end of the day, what's most important is being with our people who we love, feeling like we're creating something that's going to make it easier for the next class of people who go through this shitty experience and like keeping our heads above water because if we're doing this work and we're drowning, we're defeating the point. 
have to ask, you said below the line, is that 15 commitments of conscious leadership derived? It's a phrase that I picked up from a coach who okay. I worked with, who I'm sure we would talk about, like, are you above the line or below the yeah. line? Which was like, are you being a cranky person or are you like, <laughs> can you see this thing clearly? So that's probably where she didn't cite it when we worked together, but that's probably where she got it. Okay. On one hand, you go through that and you gain this, this little peek behind the curtain, so to speak, on, on what's important in life and you get that objectivity, but then you mentioned kind of having to continue to make that commitment. It's so it's easy to let life's vagaries or, or, you know, your, your daily stressors pull you, pull you back down or, or, or pull that curtain back down. Yeah. That to me is really like where the mastery comes in. And, you know, I think about my family is sheltering a place with me here. And there's been a few times where they're all, getting ready to go for a walk or sit down to dinner. And I'm like, you know, like I was yelling at my mom earlier. I'm like, you know, leave me alone. I'm not done working. And I look back at my screen and I'm writing an article or preparing for some kind of social media post or talking with my team about grief and loss and how much we need to cherish the time that we have to spend with the people that we love. And I'm like, Oh God damn it. While you're arguing with your family. While I'm telling my family to like, leave me alone because I have this like very important email that I have to send right now because I can't wait till tomorrow. So yeah, so it's a constant dialogue. And at the same time, this organization we're running is like, it's it from the outside, it might look easy. Like, Oh, strangers just getting to have getting together to have dinners. But like, you know, we have to fundraise a half a million dollar annual budget and we have people working in multiple time zones and there's fires that need to be put out. And it also, to do this work well, it really requires a lot of thoughtful work. So it's whole, that's another duality that we hold is like, how do we really rise to the occasion and deliver on this, this organization that Len and I both did, we didn't wake up as little girls and decide like, we want to start an organization connecting millennials who are grieving. It was like, not the plan. It feels like we stumbled upon an idea that wanted to exist in the world and we're working very hard to be the stewards of that idea. And at the same time, it's there's a lot of conversation around boundaries and making sure that we also are living lives that we want to lead and finding the balance between the two. Are there any specific personal or professional practices that you employ to, to help help stay above the line? When I'm living my best life, which isn't every day, but you know, there's like before sitting down and facing my inbox, I, if I can exercise, like go for a run, meditate even for 12 minutes, 10 minutes. And if I can read like a couple pages of a book or something that just gets my like juices flowing, I feel like I have spaciousness that allows me to then face the day from a place of more like curiosity and excitement. And, and there's definitely been times where it's like, because I have other work that I do outside of the dinner party, you know, there's often like, I often will work a six day work week and that's just like what it, I need to do to get it all done. And it's, I don't say that from any kind of victim-y place. Like it's a choice that I make and I love what I do. And I think the hazard of loving what you do means it can kind of fill in a lot of the gaps. but. I also read novels that always helps me like have a little bit of escapism. It'll be interesting in COVID times. What, like, what does a vacation look like? But that's always something that is important for me to protect is like two weeks a year where I'm not checking my email because if I check it once, it reactivates all the neurons, you know, and it's like, I need a week to just 
shut them down and then a week to like enjoy and play. So yeah, I don't think I've cracked any code that any of the other folks out there talking about this stuff have, but it's totally, it's a fun part of it is figuring out like, how do you, how do you optimize our days so that our like souls can be happy and we can be productive in a way that feels good? Yeah. What about you? I want to know your, what do you have for breakfast every morning? (laughs) I, um, meditation is definitely one that, that helps for me. I find that I'm, I'm very much either on one side of the spectrum or the other. So there'll be periods of time where I've got my daily routine down. I'm meditating, you know, reading, reading something, something short in the morning. That's, that's philosophical. I'm journaling and working out's always been super, super important to me. And is kind of to some, I don't know if it's an escape or it's uh, a habit or what have you, or psychological dependence, but it's very central. I go through periods of time where all that's going great. And then other periods of time where my habits aren't what they should be. And, you know, I don't, I'm not reaching the level of sort of objectivity or separation with the things in front of me that I'd like. I, I don't know. I think it's, it's hard sometimes. Like I want to, I want to go access those, those periods where I was, you know, going through something hard, but, but accessing a lot of insights and sometimes it feels like, you know, I'm, I'm too surface level right now. I want to, you know, I want to go, I want to go deeper. So I don't know. I think for me, it's just finding, trying to find more, um, more opportunities to do that, which frankly is one of the reasons I started this podcast. I think as much as what you created with the dinner party is an incredible way to, to honor your father. I think it's, it's the way you, the way you, we live our lives is in large part, the way we honor the people that aren't here. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. On the routine question, I think where I'm, where I land as I was hearing you talking was like reminding myself that as human beings, we are things in nature, including humans are cyclical. And my boyfriend and I are having an interesting conversation right now. We're at the beginning of the quarantine period. We started a gratitude journal. It was like kind of corny, but at the very beginning for me, it was super helpful because it was like, I needed to remind myself every morning and every night, like why that everything was okay. Yeah. And those are real. I've, uh, I think very impactful. And it was like a very powerful grounding ritual. And then a month in, like I'd get to, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be like, I want to just, I didn't feel like I needed it in the same way. And even at nighttime, I'm like, it started to feel like a chore. And my boyfriend and I have been, and he's like, he's um, a little more like, we talk about how he's sort of more rigid and like, he follows through on things probably better than I do. I'm like a little bit more free spirited perhaps, but it's what we're, the conversation we're having is like, how do we give ourselves permission that like, if we want to have a month or a week where like we're on our meditation game every day and we have the spaciousness for that, like enjoying that. But if you then have a week or a month where you're launching some big project and like you wake up at 7am and make coffee and sit down at your computer by 730, like that that's okay too. And to remove the, like the guilt and the shame and the like, oh, I, you know, the self-flagellation that happens when we don't check every single box. Anyways, that's what, that's what I'm reminding myself of right now is like allowing ourselves to have those cycles and not making ourselves wrong for falling off the wagon sometimes. It's almost like we're just getting on a different wagon. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, we're the we're the only animal that can hold on to things we didn't like and then keep abusing ourselves because of it. And I, I think about that. I think about that often, but it's just, it's so easy to go get into that cycle. 
you know, you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm not, not achieving what I want or, or I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not honoring all the experiences that I've had in my life with, with how I'm living or, you know, I'm not pushing it hard enough. So it's, uh, it is, it's, it's easy, I think, to go create all this heaviness when really it, there's no reason, there's no reason for it. Life can be light if you, if you stay present while still uh, honoring the past and let it, let it be part of you. Amen. Amen. Well, Carla, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me today. As we wrap up, for anyone that's going through grief today, do you have any advice for them? Especially now when, when everyone's more isolated than, than usual. You know, I think what I would share with people who are going through this time is to know that even though you might be physically alone in a room or in an apartment, that you're not alone and that there's other people who are going through this too. And to obviously come find the dinner party, we have a bunch of resources on our website, which is thedinnerparty.org. Whether you want to just read some people's stories or whether you want to attend a virtual dinner, we also just launched a buddy system. We heard from some people in our community that they really just want like a person that they can text with or call. They don't want to have to coordinate with a group of eight or 10. So we're also doing some matchmaking there. And yeah, there are people who are reaching their hands out to help. And it's just a matter of tracking us down online and, and meeting our hands there. I'm curious with the buddy system, how important have you found it that it be a similar type of loss when people are looking for a buddy? Yeah, it's as we look, we, we look at that a lot like, okay, does everyone around the table need to have experienced father loss from cancer before they were 21? Like, how similar does it need to be? We found that there's actually incredible value in mixing people up. Everyone, even if it's like the same sort of demographics, everyone's relationships are different. So, everyone's grief is going to be different. So, but there are some loss types like suicide loss, for example, or partner loss, or more and more people are joining our community who've lost a child. There are certain loss types that can be hot, that really do require connection with other people who are going through that particular type of thing. But sometimes we find that what's more powerful than, you know, two people who lost a dad to cancer is, do you guys like to do the same thing on the weekends? Mm -hmm. You know, we have a table in New York City that's mixed loss types, but everybody is a comedy writer. And they apparently like roll a joint before dinner and pass it around. And it's probably like one of the hottest places to be that night. And we have a, a table of women in TC that are all women of color. Um, we have a table in New York that are all people who are Jewish and have a kosher meal. So there's other ad identities and affinities that can be more powerful to connect around beyond just like loss type or times and plus. It's awesome. You're awesome. Thanks, Carla. So are you. If people want to find you uh, anywhere other than the dinner party, is it .org or .com? The dinnerparty.org. And then personally, my personal website is carlafernandez.co.co. I and the dinner party are both on all of the normal social media platforms if you want to track me or our team down there. Yeah. Loved talking with you on this Friday afternoon. I love talking to you. We should uh, do it more often. Agreed. All right. Well, thanks for the time and uh, we'll talk again soon. You're the best. All right. Take care, Carla. Bye. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you 
at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at whatdidn'tkillyou on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path. And I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.